Uh, please turn to the book of First Peter, first letter of Peter, chapter 1. entitled a sermon for this morning. Hallelujah for the new birth. Hallelujah for the new birth. Let's read from verse 1 to 9. I'll read 1 to 2. I'll make a comment and then we'll keep reading. But let's, let's pray before we, we do. Our Father in heaven, we look to you this morning we come with thanksgiving that we know you as Father, as believers, that we can call you Father. And we pray that as we look at your word, you would help us to see more of the wonders and riches of that, even as we think about this wonderful thing that you've done for all of your children and giving them a new birth. Father, we pray that you will be praised, that we would join at the Apostle Peter here in blessing you, our God, in thankfulness for your great mercy in giving us the new birth. We ask for light, for understanding. We pray that you will speak to us. We pray that you will show us wondrous things out of your word. We ask, Father, hallowed be your name. Even during this time, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done in us and among us and through us today and because of this, this hour. Give us the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your children would be appointed to your mercies and that they would bless you from the heart as well as with the mouth. We pray, Lord, that you would also be present with saving power. Lord, if there be some here who do not know you, who are not born again, who don't have Christ living in them, who don't have this new spiritual life, Lord, would you in mercy do it today by your word, by your spirit, that they too may join with us in saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Do these things for your great name's sake and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Are we on here? <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the apostle, Peter introduces himself there, who he is, Peter, an apostle, an authoritative messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ with a message from God. This is who is writing. And then, so introduces himself, he identifies them, who he's writing to, to those who are elect exiles, and in identifying them, he says some wonderful things about them. This is not merely a formal greeting. The, there are realities here of what it is to be a Christian, even as we shall be seeing. There, he calls them the elect 
exiles in, in these places in modern-day Turkey. Uh, they are this, according to the foreknowledge of God. They are people who God not only knew but loved. There's affection in this word foreknowledge from before the foundation of the world. This is, this is who they are. They're those who've been foreknown, for loved by God. In the sanctification of the Spirit, he says, they've been set apart by the Holy Spirit, and he is going on with that uh, work in them for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is who they are in this identification of them. So he, he introduces, he identifies them, and then he prays for them. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that's my prayer and trust your prayer, believers, that even as we look at this passage, Peter is writing to them and he's praying that God would increase his grace, would multiply his peace amongst them even as they read and, and hear the words of this letter. And we pray that it may be so this morning. And then verse 3 onward, which will be more of our focus here, he now praises God. He praises God for his wonderful salvation beginning with the new birth. Let's read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And he goes on to tell them how this salvation was prophesied before as the prophets searched and inquired about Christ. We'll read up to there for now. So, this is a precious portion of, of God's word. First Peter, written to these believers who are scattered in these uh, Roman provinces. They are undergoing trial, suffering of various kinds. He point, suffering comes up again and again in, 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 in this letter, including in, in the verses we read. He, he talks about the fiery trials uh, that meet them. Uh, he talks about it in chapter 2, chapter 3. 3, chapter 4, it goes on all the way to, to chapter 5. He closes uh, telling them not to be discouraged uh, because uh, the same sufferings, verse 9 of chapter 5, the same sufferings they're enduring are being faced by believers uh, all around the world. So it, that's, that's the context. That's who he's writing to. And how does he encourage them? Well, many ways, but one main way he does this is by just showing them the wonders of God's salvation, telling them, hey, Look, this thing that God has done, this salvation that you have been brought into is so wonderful, both in what you have now and what's coming in the future. There's a language of hope and expectation of the coming glory 
uh, even in the verses we read. It, it's, it's worth it. This is, this is, this is what you, you have. This is a treasure you have, and it can sustain you in the midst of suffering. And as he speaks about this glorious salvation, notice in verse 3, he begins there by pointing to one aspect of it, an initial aspect of it, a beginning of it, as it touches us in the new birth. He says, God has caused us to be born again to living hope, verse 3. And so that's, that's what I want especially to focus on. There's, obviously, there's a lot of themes in, in these verses, but I want us to see them as they are uh, connected to the new birth, which is the first thing he says there. And so, hallelujah for the new birth. That's what we're looking at uh, this, this morning. Now, uh, you might be asking, why hallelujah? Why hallelujah? Well, look at verse 3, how uh, the apostle opens verse 3. says, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to the next chapter in chapter 2, he says there that, in verse 9, he says there that uh, a big reason why God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light is so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. So there's, there's this praise that results from salvation. And Peter is doing that here himself in verse 3. He's saying, blessed be God. This word, uh, Blessed, it's, it's, a word of, it's a word of praise. When we bless God, what, what does that mean, to, 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 to say blessed be God? Well, it's, it's an acknowledgement that God is the one in whom all good, all excellency, everything that's good and glorious and wonderful, supremely so, is found in God, in this living God. And he is full and complete and self-sufficient in this. He doesn't need anything he is, he is the blessed God. All that is good is, is in him. But there's also an acknowledgement that all good then is from him. And so there's a thankfulness to this praise. It's, it's thankful praise. It's bless, blessed be God is saying you're acknowledging who he is and then you're also being thankful. So it's, it's a word of praise that includes all of these ideas. It's the word here is found in the Old Testament. The word that Peter uses in the Greek, it's how the Septuagint translates the word for blessed in the Psalms. So you can look, for example, at Psalm. Let me point, show you this in one of the Psalms. Psalm 113. Before, before I read those two verse, first two verses, you see, in this, in this praise that the Peter is making here, by implication, there is a call for us also to join it, for his writers to, to, for his readers, uh, to hear this and to think, yes, blessed be God. He has caused me to be born again. This is, this is a reason to praise him. And so that, that's what brings us to this word hallelujah. The word hallelujah, it's straight from the Hebrew. It's a word that means praise Yahweh, you all. It's in the, in the second person plural. It's praise, praise Yahweh, praise, praise God. 
And we see these two words side by side in some of the Psalms, like 113, which I want to read to you. Praise the Lord. That's hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Then verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's still continuing the praise using this word, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so this is a common way in uh, even in, in Judaism, going all the way back and to, to, to present day as well, and expressing praise to God with this form, blessed. Uh, look at Psalm 72. Just uh, one more Psalm. Psalm 72, verse 18, towards the end of that Psalm, we read this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he gives a reason why he's praising God with this language, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. So Peter is doing something that was common then, but, but with very specific content in light of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's go back to First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So I hope, I hope you see why I'm saying hallelujah for the new birth. And as we look at this, my prayer is with God's blessing, the believers among us, you would indeed say hallelujah. Blessed be God for giving me the new birth. And also, I do want to, I will be speaking here, um, not, not assuming that everyone is born again. I, I believe it would be unfaithful of me before God to assume that everyone knows the Lord and is born again. And it would also be unloving of me. It's a wonderful reality that we're talking about. And so why wouldn't I want you to know it and to call you to seek the Lord, that you may know him and that you may have the new birth because it's a wonderful, wonderful reality. It's an important uh, truth. It's a foundational truth. So many things uh, in the Christian life depend on a right understanding of this and so many misunderstandings spring from missing it it's, it's also a necessary truth as we shall see there's no entry into the kingdom of God without the new birth but it's also a misunderstood truth right we're looking at it from first Peter but if I were to ask you where would you go in the Bible to uh, read about and see uh, about being born again regeneration the new birth uh, these are identical uh, terms. Perhaps it's John 3. It's probably the most well-known for this. And that's the passage where you see Nicodemus, a religious leader, a teacher, and he, Jesus brings this up, and he is all confused. He doesn't understand, doesn't know what's going on. That's, that's common in our day as well, both here in your country, but also in, in Kenya, where I'm from. A lot, this word can be thrown around, born again, born again, with not biblical content. So it's important that we know what we're talking about, right? Okay, so let's look at it then. Uh, first thing I want to, us to see from this passage, first of all, we'll, we'll see. Uh, let me give these to you uh, before we go any further. We'll, I want us to see that, first of all, it's, it's a necessary birth. It's a necessary birth. It's a God-given birth this new birth, and uh, it's Christ-centered, it's a Christ-centered uh, birth, 
and then that it's, it's a birth with privileges, a privileged birth. So necessary, God-given, Christ-centered, privileged, birth with privileges. And we shall uh, keep uh, looking at this passage later this evening, but for now that's what I'd like us to see. So first of all, it's a necessary birth. How can we see that from our passage here? I would say the first way we see it is actually just from the term itself. It says, born again. Born again. That God has caused us to be born again. The, and I say we see it in the very word itself because it's, it, it implies a, something new, something, a new beginning, something being redone. And God is not doing something that's not necessary. He gives us the new birth because we are wrong from the beginning. Our first one has set us all wrong. And so we need, we need a new birth. The word and several of the words that are used for the new birth in, in Scripture, in the, in the original they have, they usually have some kind of prefix and then a word, for example, here it's the word for birth, beginning. It's a word we get uh, things like Genesis and genetics from and then you have a prefix uh, here in our case it's Anna which has to do with again Anna you can remember the Anabaptists uh, during the Reformation the rebaptizers they called them they were baptizing again and so it's it's a we see the necessity of it in the very word itself that it's the, the God is beginning he's 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 redoing he is he's undoing what's there and he is doing things again. The, the first birth is wrong. By nature, we're, we're off, we're wrong, we're sinful, we're lost. And so we need a new beginning, a new birth. But not just the word itself, but in the context we see Paul, Peter speaking about salvation. And by its very nature, salvation presupposes a problem. A danger, something to be rescued from, saved from. And so that's another way we see the need for the new birth. And, and he's saying salvation that he goes on to speak about begins in terms of our experience of it with the new birth. So that's another way we see uh, the need. But also, just in, the, in terms of the natural condition, our natural sinful condition that... Um, is implied and sometimes very clearly stated, even just within uh, this book of First Peter. If you go just up to verse 2, it says there that these believers have been foreknown of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. That itself does point us. This, this making holy of the Spirit points us to the sinfulness of man by nature. But these ones, these believers, are those who have been sanctified, set apart by the Spirit. Or look at even the obedience. Believers now have been called to obedience to Jesus Christ, but that's not what we are by nature. And we see that clearly if you actually drop down to verse 14 of this same chapter. Uh, by this point in verse 14, Peter is applying the truths that he's been uh, speaking about, th those realities of salvation. He's now saying how these believers should live. And he says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
This is, this is how he describes these people before they knew the Lord. And you can see it just in that verse. If you, if the opposite of what he's saying here is what, what, what they were. Now he, sell, he tells them, as obedient children, what were we before? Disobedient. What, 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 um, what passions animated us? What, what desires? The word there is desires. It's really the word that's translated sometimes lusts, which is inordinate desire, either for the wrong thing or for the right thing at the wrong time or the right thing in the wrong amounts. But this, this, is, this is what we are with disobedient, sinful desires. And then he speaks of former ignorance. And that's really the whole, this, this verse captures the whole of our, the, the faculties of our soul. The, the mind, what is it? It's darkened. It's ignorant. This is what we are by nature. Scripture speaks of this, Ephesians 4, for example, that we're, we're, we're alienated, we're darkened in, in our minds. So the mind, ignorant, foolish thoughts of God and, and ourselves and what, what's really good, and that's, that's the mind of sinful man by nature. The, the will, it's rebellious. He says, now you should be obedient children. God has made you so. Live that way. But, but before, what's our natural state? Disobedience, rebellion obstinate. We're enemies of God. The, the mind of the flesh, enmity with God, does not submit to the law of God, right? The heart full of sinful desires in love with sin, filled with deceitful, evil desires that corrupt, hates God and his law. This is us by nature. Do you see why we need a new begin? Do you see why we need a new heart? Do you see, do you see the necessity of the new birth here You see, unless you see the radical nature of sin, you won't see the need for the new birth. Go to any passage of scripture that shows us in terms of our sinfulness what we are, and you see there the need for a total transformation. You go to Genesis 6, that verse about the thoughts of and the intentions of the heart of man being always evil continually. You could go to uh, the passages in the Gospels where Christ says, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, foolishness. We can go to Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart of man deceitful, wicked, desperately wicked above all things. Romans 3, that, that, that point where, where, where Paul pictures the, the whole man in sin. So unless you see the radical nature of sin, what we are as sinners by nature. You won't see. You will think we just need a little bit of patching up, but no. The remedy is so radical because the disease is so bad. The antidote is so potent because the poison is so strong and dangerous. And so, because of that, Scripture proclaims to every man, woman, boy, girl, you must be born again. You must be born again. That's the language of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 3. Several times he says to Nicodemus, 
you must be born again. Religious Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says, Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, you must be born again. Nicodemus, respectful. Nicodemus, who, 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 who is positively inclined towards Jesus, he comes to him and he says, good teacher. He says positive things about him. You see, there are many people who would never say a bad word about Jesus Christ who are nevertheless not born again. You must be born again. Nicodemus, who knew the Bible, Jesus tells him, you're a teacher of Israel. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, knew the Bible, and yet you must be born again. Nicodemus was nice and polite, yet he must be born again because of what we are by nature. Do, do you see? Do you see? Are, are you persuaded about the need for the new birth? You see, God has blessed the preaching of the new birth in history to awaken people to their need for Christ and to bring the new birth as the gospel is preached alongside clear teaching on the new birth. I'm thinking here of the great awakenings in, in America. A man like George Whitfield, he would preach often on the new birth. In fact, uh, making a point here about the necessity of it, uh, there was one time a woman comes to George Whitfield, the evangelist, and says to him, why are you always telling us we need, we must be born again? And George Whitfield said, it's because... You must be born again. The necessity of it. See, we live in an age where atheism is increasing. And so we can tend, even as believers, to almost think that what's needed for people is to come to to see there is a God more, more generally. As if being theist is sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. Believing there is a God never saved anyone, right? You see, Jesus was not crucified by atheists, was he? No. There was people who believed in God. So we need, we need more than that. We need the new birth. Perhaps I'm speaking to someone who has seen their sinfulness and they think, oh, what I need is to do better. I'll do better next time. I'll resolve. Friend, no, you must be born again. You need a a total change, a total makeover. You see, it's, it's like taking your car to the mechanic and thinking you just need a, a minor fix, and he says, no, no, it's not, it's not just that little hub on the tie. No, it's you need a whole. You need a new engine. It's it, it all. It all needs to be hauled up. You 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 call the repairman in the house to to look at that little crack in the basement, and he says, "No, we can't repair this. This whole thing needs to come down. We need a whole new thing. You must be born again. Do you see this?" I'll give a word of personal testimony here. 
I came to see my need of Christ through the preaching of the new birth. There I was, freshman year in college, and I'd begun to see my sin, and, and what did I do? What every sinner beginning to be convinced of his sinfulness often does, try to clean yourself up, try Try on your own. Try to turn over a new leaf. And you realize the other side of the leaf is just as rotten as the other one. It's still, it's still. And then I heard there is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to give new life, a new birth. That's, that's what led me to looking for life in Christ. I mean, God... Do that for someone here this morning. So we're saying it's a necessary birth. Let's, let's move and think about the sec- our second point. It's a God-given birth. It's a God-given birth. This, this we, can't, we can't do this for ourselves. It's, it's like trying to clean yourself up with a dirty rag. You cannot. We need... We absolutely need a new birth. Here before we we'll look at this, going back to the hallelujah and blessed be God, as I describe what we are by nature, believer, do, do, it, should, it should make us, should make me and you think, look, this is how much we needed this, and God in his mercy has done it for us. Isn't that a cause to say, blessed be God, hallelujah, for the new birth. Let's, let's look at the, at, the, at the fact that it's a God-given birth. How do we see this? Again, uh, from the language of the text itself, uh, the being born again here, it's in the passive. It doesn't say, congratulations, you caused yourself to be born again. No. <laughs> Who is he praising? God. Blessed God who has caused us to be born again. God is the agent. He is the actor here, and he is the one being praised. So that's one way we see it. But notice also, I want to make uh, this point here that the triune God, each of the three persons of the Trinity, is involved in the work of salvation, and so also in this aspect of it, the new birth. Now, it is true that it is more specifically said in other passages of Scripture of the Holy Spirit, that it's, it's the Spirit of God who regenerates uh, the heart. And yet, our triune God works in concert there, Father, Son, Spirit. And so even going back to our passage here, the foreknowledge of God the Father in verse 2. You see, that foreknowledge, which points us to the fact of election, as he even calls them the elect ones, you see, salvation was planned there. Redemption was planned there. But when, when does it touch us in our experience? Is it not in the new birth when when, when that is made a reality, and that one who is under the wrath of God, like all the children of mankind, like the rest of mankind, is finally made new, brought to faith 
for Christ regenerated. And so, so the apostle there says, yeah, bless be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his mercy that's caused us to be born again. It's a birth by the Father. So this title, Father, for the Christian, it's not just, a, <clears throat> it's not just an illustration from a human relationship. You see, your earthly father is your father because there is, there is, there is a, there's a, there's a kinship there. There's something of him in you. And it, it is the same with a new birth. See, there's, scripture teaches that we're adopted into the family of God, right? But there's something you cannot do with adoption in earthly terms, right? You go and adopt a child, you they legally become your child. You know, they get all the privileges. They come into your home. But there's something you can't do for them. You can't give them anything of your nature in adoption. But our salvation, this glorious salvation, through the new birth, in regeneration, God gives something of his nature in us. If you look in this same uh, chapter, in verse 23, the apostle says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So there he says, he, it's through the word of God, that imperishable seed, that we're born again. There's something he says in Second Peter 1, if you turn a few pages to Second Peter 1, verse Four, he speaks there about believers and he says that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now we should be careful there. This is not in any Eastern mysticism sort of way where everything is God and everyone is in God and, and all of that. But no. And yet there is this truth that scripture teaches that true Christianity is the life of God in the soul of a man or woman. God giving us something of himself, making us new, giving us that, that family likeness and regeneration. So the Father is involved, the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, when it speaks there of the sanctification of the Spirit, I believe it is not initially uh, speaking of that process of sanctification. I believe that is included. But there's this other definitive element of sanctification that we see in Scripture where, in this, in this case, the Holy Spirit setting apart a sinner, setting them apart for God and unto God and unto obedience to Jesus Christ, so that it can be spoken in that perfected sense. It has happened. You've been sanctified. And then, of course, we know that in terms of the process, progressive sanctification is a real thing. But there, we already see the work of the Spirit in the new birth. We could go to other scriptures, Titus 3, verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, it's the Spirit who gives life. So we're seeing here the Father is involved in regeneration, the Holy Spirit, here more specifically. The Holy Spirit 
applies redemption, salvation to us. And how does he begin to do that? This initial act, this new birth, this regeneration. There's a helpful illustration about the applicatory work of the Holy Spirit that uh, Spurgeon gives. And he says, think about a, a bee. Well, first of all, you have the flower. There's, there's a nectar in the flower. And then there's a bee that comes and, and puts it in a, in a honeycomb in a form that, that we can access. And he is making the analogy there and says there's, there's all these riches in God the Father. They come down to us in a form we can receive in the Son, God incarnate, the Son of God. And in the Holy Spirit, he says, it's, he brings the honey to the mouth. Brings the honey to the mouth, applying into our hearts. So we're seeing it's a God-given birth, the work of the Father, work of the Spirit. This is a good place to say that it's a supernatural birth as we think of it as a God-given birth. It's a supernatural birth. It's, it's, beyond, it's beyond mere human nature. It's beyond what we can do of ourselves. It's, it's an invasion from God into the life of a sinner, making them new, born again. You'll have people deny this, this reality. I don't know if you had the experience uh, when you were born again and perhaps trying to talk to family or friends, and they do see these changes in you, and you try to tell them, you salvation. It's Jesus Christ. He's God by his mercy has caused me to be born again. And what does sinful, unbelieving man do? Oh, he strives to find natural explanations for this. You can think of uh, the apostle Peter before, uh, I forget whether it's Felix or Agrippa, and he tells them his conversion and what happened to him. And what does that man say? Oh, you too much learning has messed up with, with your mind. Trying to find a natural explanation to this supernatural act of God. In my case, it, I, was, I was converted after I had come to the U.S., and so I did have some close uh, relatives of mine trying to put it together, and they said, oh, it's, I think he, you, went, you went to America, and you saw such bad things, you just overreacted. That's, that's what's going on. And all kinds of things were said. Natural man trying to find natural explanations for this supernatural reality of the new birth. But it's also an act of God's mercy. That's something that is emphasized here, that it's, it's an act of God's mercy. The mercy of God. Mercy looks at us. There's a, there's a slight distinction between mercy and grace. Grace looks at us in our guilt as undeserving of anything good from God. Mercy, more specifically, looks at us in our misery, in our need, in our miserable condition. It's the difference between, you know, you're walking down in the street and you meet someone, it's a homeless person, and they say, could you give me something to eat? There, 
as you look at them in their hunger and their dirt and their situation, you, you act in mercy towards them. Mercy is more prominent in that case than, than grace. But what if you were walking down the street and you see him and you see his scar on the left arm and you see his tattoo on the right hand and you see this is the man who mugged me two weeks ago. And he says to you, could I have something to eat? And you take him to McDonald's and you buy him a burger and whatever else he likes from there. That's, that's more grace. He, he, it's, it's undeserved. He's, he's ill-deserved this. You're doing that. Well, both of them are involved in, in our salvation. But here, Peter focuses especially on God's mercy looking at us in our miserable condition and acting to get us out of there in the new birth. Mercy, mercy. It's by mercy, believer, that you have been born again. And so part of your praise then is to, hallelujah, to the mercy of God that has caused me to be born again. See, my, my mom's name is, is Mercy. But what this verse is saying to you, child of God, is that you too, your mother's name is mercy. Figuratively speaking, you've been born again the second time by mercy, the mercy of God, the mercy of God. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says, without God's being merciful to a man, there can be no salvation, but God's mercy, suppose it as abundant as it is, as you are able to conceive it, can, nor never will save any man without regeneration. So, you see what he is arguing there, that salvation is by the mercy of God, but God's mercy is expressed initially in, at the beginning of our salvation in the new birth, so God will never save any man without regeneration. He says, for it is clear in the text that herein it is that God shows the abundance of his mercy, even to beget again those he means to save, as without which he could not save them. No salvation without mercy, no salvation without the new birth, which is birth of mercy. It's great mercy, he says. It's abundant mercy. It's rich mercy of God that we see in, in the new birth. I do also want to say that it's, as we look at it as a God-given birth, it's also an act of God's power. It's an act of power, this, this new birth, this reality we call the new birth. I believe that's one of the things that's pointed at when he connects it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Scripture relates our newness, as we shall see that uh, to, to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same divine power that's unleashed in the raising of a dead soul in a giving the new birth. It's an act of God's power. You see, no electric power, nuclear power, political power, economic power, whatever, could have gotten Jesus from that grave, but the divine power of God. And likewise, 
Nothing can change sinner, make them born again apart from the power of God. It's a powerful work of God. God is to be praised for his wonderful act, including this one of, of the new birth. So I ask you, do you, do you think of it in those terms? Or do you have a low view of what it means to be born again? Do you see it as this wonderful act of God, supernatural, changing, transforming by his mercy, changing sinners, bringing them into relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? This is, this is the new birth. This is what it is to be born again. And it has glorious effects. I see we're running out of time here. Good thing we will come back to this, uh, this evening. I do want to you know, just make the third point. don't think we'll get to the privileges this morning. But I do want to speak about the Christ-centeredness of this birth. That we, we, We've already touched on that in terms of its connection to the resurrection of Jesus. But two things, just to say here, that it is a blessing of salvation that is purchased by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And secondly, that it is a life that we have in union with Christ. These are some ways we see the Christ-centeredness of this birth and part of the reason to insist on this is because you can hear out in the world that people speak of a kind of new beginning, uh, even in other religions. I was looking up, I think in Hinduism, they have a, uh, something of a new birth uh, called Viya, something like that. But it's totally, something totally different. It's something, it's rituals you're doing. It's not all of these things we're describing. And particularly under our point here, it's not, has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. But the new birth of the Bible has everything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that purchased this blessing as well as all other blessings of salvation. You see, Christ in this book of 1 Peter, in terms of his sufferings, he is put before us, even as an example, in chapter 2. Uh, it says there, Christ suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. But, 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 that's not the foundation or the gospel at all. The gospel is not, here is Jesus, be like him. See how he was suffering. Now go and do likewise. That is not the good news. That's, that's not good news. That's, that's, that's setting up a standard. And no standard ever saved and transformed and changed and rescued. No. It's Jesus Christ himself living, dying in the place of sinners so that our sins can now righteously be forgiven. And then him rising again from the dead. And he is now living and reigning, resurrected. And he is exalted, able to give repentance and forgiveness of sins, as we read in Acts. And he is the one who purchased this blessing of 
the new birth, as well as everything else in salvation. First Peter 1, 2, going back up there, it does speak there of the sprinkling with his blood. The sprinkling with his blood. This takes us back to the Old Testament uh, sacrifices, some of which included sprinkling uh, either the, the altar or the house being cleansed. And sometimes a person, uh, we read this, for example, of a priest like Aaron in Exodus 29, 21, uh, it may also echo Exodus 24, where the Lord promises the people the land of Canaan, an inheritance, which is a theme that Peter picks up on. And there, Moses reads the words of the old covenant, and he sprinkles the blood on them. The Christians, we are sprinkled, so to speak, with the blood of the new covenant of Christ. His death in our place, that we might be forgiven and made new. You see, with any birth, physically speaking, there is the pains of childbirth. And that image is used in Scripture. Often, uh, you, you might hear uh, even uh, some of the older writers speaking about the pains of conviction in the sinner as the pains of uh, leading up to the new birth. But I think it's more accurate to see the the very death of Christ on the cross, his pains, his sufferings there, as the pains that birth souls anew. Isaiah uses that language, actually, in Isaiah 53. He says there, he shall see of the travail of his soul, language that points to pains akin to the pains of childbirth. It says in Isaiah 53, when his soul, uh, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So figuratively speaking, it's the pains of Christ, his dying in our place. That's the only reason we can be forgiven and made new. The atonement then is a foundation and the payment price for all of salvation, including the new birth. Go and look at John chapter 3 in your own time there and see so soon after Jesus speaks about the new birth to, to Nicodemus, he goes right, right ahead to speak about the atonement you know, with the image of the serpent that Moses lifted up as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever looks at him will have eternal life so regeneration is based upon the work of Christ there is no new birth without what Christ did for us on the cross and I insist on this because there is a danger of so emphasizing the new birth and the transformation within that you can lose the work of Christ outside of us. And I, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was once uh, rebuked for this early on in his ministry. Uh, someone told him, you talk of God's action and God's sovereignty like a hyper-Calvinist and of spiritual experience like a Quaker, but the cross and the work of Christ have little place 
in your preaching. And then later he comments, I was like Whitfield in my early preaching. First, I preached regeneration, that all man's efforts in morality and education are useless, and that we need power from outside ourselves. Then he says, I assumed the atonement, but did not distinctly preach it, or justification by faith. This man set me thinking, and I began to read more fully in theology. So see what he's saying there. We, we have to have both of them. It's Christ outside of us doing that work that we cannot do, dying for us to pay the sin debt, rising again. And then this Christ, on the basis of his work, applying that work and making us alive. So both of them are important. They address the two aspects of our sinfulness the bad record that we have because of the sins we have committed, but also the bad heart which leads to those, to those sins, right? And so we need, we need both. It's because he lives. This is a second way to see that connection. That, that, that's, that the new life that you have as a Christian is the life of Jesus. It's life in union with him. It's because he lives that you live. It's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. Well, in closing, what, what would you do then if you are an unbeliever listening to this and, and you think, I, I, don't, I don't have that. I, I, haven't, I don't know a change that has transformed me and made me a new person. I'm, I'm, I'm what I always have been. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's a good place to begin, to realize you don't have it. And then realize the, the danger that you're in, because if you're not born again, you will go to, to hell. This passage has a lot to say to heaven, but it's for people who have been born again. If you're not born twice, you will die twice, the second death of hell. So it's good that you're thinking, do I have do I have this? But then what, what would I call you to? It's to the one who gives this life. It's to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, risen from the dead, able to change a sinner like you and give you new life so that you would begin to praise him for, for the new birth. Well, we'll stop there. Believers, isn't this wonderful thing that God has done for you, making you a new person and setting you up on this journey onward to glory as Peter goes on to speak of it. Well, may God be praised for this gift of the new birth and may he help us to appreciate it more and to grow on in learning what he's done for us and to live in light of the new birth. Well, may God bless these words to us. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your word, and we pray that you will apply it to our hearts. I, I thank you, Father, for giving me the new birth. I praise your mercy and grace and power. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to see more the wonders of salvation 
And we pray that we would also reflect more the image of our Father who has begotten us again into a living hope. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your dying for us, for your living, and for sharing your very life with us, that we may live in you and with you. And blessed Spirit of God, we thank you that you come and that you make this a reality in our hearts, that you make us new and you indwell us. We thank you, triune God, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.